G'day, and welcome to the Hunter's Campfire Podcast. My name's Mark, and along with good mate Ian, we're here to help with all things hunting. If you're looking to start, but don't know where to begin, you want to make the most of your next trip away, or even plan to hunt of a lifetime, we've got something for you. You'll find our podcasts on Apple, Google, Spotify, Amazon, and plenty of others. And if you want more, head over to our YouTube channel, The Hunter's Campfire, where we have plenty of how-to and hunting videos, along with the full video production of every podcast. Don't forget to like and subscribe, and good hunting. Good afternoon, sports fans, and it is an afternoon because uh, we're talking to Peter Ryan from New Zealand. So this is uh, a what four o'clock presentation three, or three, three o'clock presentation. Three so, uh, g'day, Jono, g'day, Ian, and g'day, Peter. How are you all going? G'day, boys. Yep, all good. Good here too, mate. Yep, That's it. To this yeah, all good on my side as well. It's gonna be fun. So uh, before we jump into the conversation, uh, let's do the usual round the traps. Um, so anything happened exciting? I know there's, I know there has been, so we should talk about it for each of us. So um, I'm going to kick off. Uh, first exciting thing is today um, at the post office arrived my first bit of Kuyu clothing that I've ever been afforded to purchase. So I've now moved into Kuyu. So. <laughs> Well, wow. okay. there you go. That's very exciting. I must admit, I'm very excited by that. And it is really nice gear too, by the way. It is really nice gear. And the second bit of exciting thing for me personally is that I got a recent hunting story, hunting public land with my son, published mm. in the SSAA Junior. Must pay well to be buying Kuyu, huh? Yeah, it must be very well. Well, I've only got one item, so So, yeah, I want the camera from about here to here. Right, a beanie, good job. That's it. That's it. Yeah, beanie and a sticker. Nice to have the the um the father son the father son article published. That's that's kudos. It was. Uh, I've had a few in um, Australian uh, junior shooter. And uh, they're always they're always really good articles in the way they lay them out. Lots of photos, mm. um, multiplayed spreads, um, and this one was the first public land. Oh no, not technically, but our first uh, decent public land hunt. We went to Nundle last year in um, June, July. July. Mm. That's mm. a big that's a big event for me. Good stuff. Well, it's been super busy. Hence, we haven't put a podcast out for probably four weeks because, well, it is rut and raw period right so mm-hmm. um i'm sure most people that listen to the podcast are aware that we ran a hunter's camp down in nundle we had uh 20 odd hunters come into camp and spend time with us over a, a seven to ten day period which was just awesome um loads of people came in that hadn't shot deer there were people there that hadn't even seen a deer um, touched a deer uh it was just such a great way for people to come into camp soak up some knowledge get some tips go out and in a number of cases, shoot their first deer and bring it into camp and learn how to break it down and get it home to the table. So um, for those that um, that came to the camp, thanks very much for supporting it. Um, we had some really great um, support from Beretta and Ground Force uh, and Bush Edge and a, and a, and a few others, um, donating some prizes and bits and pieces that were really well received. And look, it was just a really great time. So um, there's people looking at um, heading back there in the next week or two for the second cycle of the rut 
uh, hoping to pick up those bucks that they found scrapes that didn't manage to take. Um, they'll be still there and they'll still be doing their thing, so good luck to them. And we had a whole bunch of people show up in camp that weren't part of our, um, well, not that it was an invite group, but those that had RSVP'd to come. There were others that just showed up, come in to say hi. Um, you know, we're really keen to, to share some more experiences and, and get some ideas, so uh, just a really wholesome trip. So it was great, and we had some success. Um, I got a couple of deer, which was great, and was able to use that opportunity to teach a few people what to do with them. So, yeah, really good. Lots of planning for the next trip, but um, that's probably enough for me for now. John? I've had a couple pretty busy weeks as well. So as many of you may be aware, I, uh, I managed to get um, out in the raw, chasing the reds. Um, had some luck, was really, really hard hunting. Uh, hunted four or five days, some big hills, some big gullies. Saw plenty of stags, but nothing really worth shooting up until the last morning where I managed to get a nice double five. So I'm pretty happy with that. That's what I was hoping for, was at least five points on one side because I seem to only five the, find the double fours. So double five this year was the minimum and I found them on the last morning. Uh, there was a bigger stag further down the gully, but I decided to take the opportunity when it presented itself. Uh, so yeah, pretty happy with the result. Um, and then I was back for a few days, a few days camping with the family. And then I went down to Melbourne for the uh, the Beretta um, dealer day, which was pretty exciting. It was lots of fun. Got to shoot some awesome pistols, some shotguns, some of the newer rifles. Um, got to meet Gemma in person, Gemma Dunn, who's been on the podcast a few times. So yeah, it was pretty. It was a lot of fun actually. It was, uh, it was very enjoyable. Fantastic. Hey, did you get a chance to shoot one of those um, auto loading Bellini shotguns? Benelli, no, sorry? we didn't, didn't have any. Didn't have any auto loading. I did manage oh. to shoot some really fancy Berettas, costing thirty to forty thousand dollars for a mm. Beretta shotgun. But I did get to shoot a shotgun with Gemma Dunn, so that was pretty exciting. Um, and I managed to miss as well. So the, how's that for embarrassing? <laughs> well, <laughs> she's a, she, she's an Olympic coach, right? So that's right. Yeah, exactly. That's right. Of Gemma. But you should have seen her trying to show someone who'd never shot a shotgun before hit hit some clays. It was really impressive. She's she's amazing. She really, really is amazing. And um, exciting things ahead for her with, with her role at Beretta. So it should be very good. Mm. Okay. And uh, Peter, over to you. Uh, anything you want to um, update the, the punters with? Oh, well, a similar experience to, uh, to Jono. It was a pretty warm kind of roar. Um, I think it actually kept a lot of the, the, the boys uh, a little bit quieter than normal. Um, I didn't cross anything that was really belting except for one one buck miles away, fellow buck. Um, so yeah, they were on, but they weren't really, really on. And I went out probably four times in four weeks. Um, mm. So look, good, a good, a good roar. Um, put away a, a nice fellow uh, with my son next to me, which was good. Nice black fellow. Um, still in, in good shape early, so he wasn't all rutted out and still edible. Um, quite strong and, and uh, good good amount of fat on him, um, and uh, and my son went on his first red stag hunt um, at thirteen. So uh, that that right. that was that was pretty pretty special. But it kind of um, it had roller coaster vibe to it. Uh, we saw we saw this is a bush block, okay. So this is not going to be Christmas trees. This is this is lean bush country with bush heads in it. Hmm. Um, uh, and and gets a little bit of pressure, but it was a good, still a good place for him to go. The terrain wasn't too threatening, um, so uh, yeah, we saw we saw our first Hummel, which I've never seen before. Oh. A big, big-bodied stag, no antlers whatsoever. Oh, um, none at all. Mm -hmm. So none, none, wow. none. And I'd say he has never had them. He's he's obviously 
a little bit uh, handicapped in the downstairs department and just doesn't produce antlers. But as a result, they, they get solid, you know, because they're not working to produce antlers every year. So this was a, this would have been a good meat animal, but he was actually in a irretrievable place. You'd, you'd never get him out. Was um, he red? Did you say red not, hummel? Yeah, red, red stag. Yeah. Mm, wow. Um, okay. So uh, we, it was promising that we heard fighting. We came up on the fighting and busted beam, uh, nothing doing. Uh, then a spiker squirted out. Then we found the hummel, but in a place where you couldn't shoot him. Uh, and then right on dark, right on dark, um, the fellow I was hunting with, his, his son actually spotted a stag off in the distance. But I mean, there was minutes of shooting right left. So it was really just um, have have a crack. But I mean, he's he's grown up shooting, um, but this is with my 308, my old Sarko. Um, mm. And it was it's 200, 210 meters and absolutely put the lights out. So for a, for a boy his age, under that kind of pressure, um, the, the quality of the head almost doesn't matter. Doesn't uh, no. he, he really no. did. He really did well for his age, um, and I mean it's a bush head, but it is a, a seven by five. So I mean it's got a it's got points. <laughs> it's a ki- it's um, a kiwi bush head. Yeah, it's a bit different to the bush head that we. Right. That's right. It's like those well, two matchsticks that I shot this year. Yeah. I, I I guess it's relative, but I mean he was never going to get any better. Put it that way. Yeah. Um, what I'd a great experience. Six or seven. Uh, Sorry. I said, oh, what yeah, a great yeah, experience to have with your son. Yeah. Mm. yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, oh, I hope, I hope he remembers that forever. You know, mm. I think I'm sure he will. will. Yeah, I think he will. Mm. So, oh, okay. so tell me, understand? Sorry, go on, guys. Sorry, we've got a, we've got a slight delay. I'll try not to talk over you. Um, I was just curious the the dates around the fellow. Where, whereabouts are you based at the moment? You're in the South Island. I'm in the South Island, North Canterbury. Um, yeah. They the fellow seem to switch on at different times in different places. Um, yeah, this would yeah. have been mm. north. 15th or so thereabouts okay um yep. and they were going but apart from one they weren't really going hard but it, it's really hard to pick really hard to pick mm. um i do know that generally they were going across the south island at that time but individual animals seem mm. to go at different times i suspect and this is this is not science this is just my crackpot theory the big boys start off early they do their job early and they bugger off early um, and that what you hear in the main part of the rut is actually youngsters and tryhards and you know the eleven o'clock at the pub guys. Um, they're fighting it out after the big boys have actually come and gone. Yeah, because yeah, that is a go, theory. They go back to where they they come from. So if, if I'm going to make a mistake, I'd rather make it on the early side than on the late side. Oh, okay, so again, a bit like the guys, you know. I have to thrash that one around a little bit. Though. I love hearing different theories about it, you know, yeah. because uh, I wrote a little bit about it, you know. It, we just speculate on what animals do, you know. We we, we try to give them, we try, we try to make, you know, we try to overlay things like calendars and all that on, you know, on these things. But we're just, we're just guessing, you know, at and best. And feelings. That's it. it. You know, it's like someone says to me, oh, when do they, you know, why do they rut and where they roar? And, you know, and what about challenges to the environment? And I said, well, think about you're a red stag and you're in Scotland and they stick you on a boat and you end up in Brisbane Valley. <laughs> How's that yeah. for a change of environment and time? And somehow you've managed to, 
to to create a new breeding cycle. You know, so it's it's quite an amazing thing. Um, I found that last year on the last week of March, the block I was on, the deer, the reds were everywhere roaring. This year they were that time, same same calendar time. They were up in the hills and they weren't coming down. So I'm going up there again yep. Friday. Um, so yeah, so it's it's really quite interesting that. We think it's science, but it's actually it's actually the myths that we're the most happy with. That's it, I um, think so. Yeah. And, and no one's no one's worse. We think we're bad, but no one is worse at it than trout fishermen with with <laughs> flies and things. They make up this vast encyclopedia of knowledge about flies to catch something that so, sometimes we eat a cigarette butt. But there's yeah, a whole yeah. <laughs> something that you can right. hit with a rock. Oh, no, no, that's, that's, got, that's got too much color. It needs a bit more flash. You know, that hasn't got the the, the it hasn't got quite enough float. Yeah. It doesn't sit right in the meniscus. Yeah, well, sometimes um, sometimes it works, and mm. then other times the theory doesn't work, and that's when the deer are wrong. You know. Mm. Yeah. Well, I um, I have my my theory for fallow, but it's and there's not a lot to it. Um, I'm I'm pretty firmly believe that whatever the caliber of uh, buck that I was chasing on the 16th of April that class of animal if you want to call it that, not the young ones, maybe not the old ones that have come and gone, but the 11 o'clockers at the pub right? they come in on the 16th of April 14th, 15th, 16th, 17th somewhere around there and they'll do that every year because for me it's yep. about it's about the light whether they roar and carry on or, or uh, croak and carry on uh, comes down to the volume of animals, temperature, how they're feeling, that sort of stuff. But they're there at the same time every time, I personally believe. Well, I'm really interested in your theory, though, whether those big fellas have come and gone. But um, I kind of, my initial instinct is probably not, for me anyway, um, far less experienced than you are at hunting, Pete. But Because um, I don't see the same volume of thrashing and scrapes and, and bits and pieces that they would naturally see. Like if I was there, this year I was there a week early, the young ones were certainly about the spikers and the, you know, the, the two-year-olds, um, and the the scrapes had started. And I know if I go back a week later, those scrapes are bigger, and those other animals have come in. Yeah. But if those big fellas have come and gone, man, they're ninjas. They do it without scrapes. They do it without rubs. They. I'd love. I'd love it if you were right. That's so <laughs> awesome. Well, yeah, it's 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 a really interesting. Your experienced hunters sneak in there and smack the big ones and stick That's them on right. social media, and we're still fucking around trying to pack our bags. Because <laughs> I mean, the block uh, I hunted was the amount of spikers that run up before the the the, the roar. I thought, oh, you know, I'm, I'm going to be kicking them out of the way. I get that. There's nothing there, so you know, that, it, it's it's quite. I quite like. I like the idea. I mean, and I think that's it. You, we're go, I'm now going to make that, and it's going to become a myth. Three rumps later, it's going to be now. Listen, if you're going to, go, <laughs> that's yeah, well, and that's chose. all it is is a three rum myth. You know, that's I mean, it. I, I wouldn't put that out there as science. If I want to qualify it, I would qualify it with. It might depend a bit on the terrain, mm. because yeah. there are places where I think red stags go to rut and then they go back where they normally live. And then there's other places where they're kind of resident and and they don't have to do all those shenanigans. Um, so it, it kind of depends on the location and blah, 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 blah. Actually, it depends on so many variables that none of the theories actually hold good. Nice. So, um, but that's that's the one I would wheel out after three rumps is, is if you're going to go... <laughs> I think that would be fantastic because 
from a public land point of view, what it'll do is you, you'll open up forests because everyone will go, you go early, go early, go early, go early. <laughs> You need Maybe to be there. Get a booking, you yeah. need to be there in February, mate. <laughs> <Yeah, really. laughs> well, just after Christmas. That's when that's right. Yeah, you gotta go. Go early. Go early. Uh, this guy he told me. He told me go early. That's it. Well, look, I think we're already getting into it. So let's let's have a uh, uh, let's do our formal introduction. So, firstly, thank you, uh, Peter Ryan, for uh, for joining us today. For those who don't know, and I don't know what's wrong with you if you don't know, Peter Ryan, I believe is probably the. No, no, I'm going to say this. I think you're probably the best um, hunting writer getting around at the moment. Um, Peter's what three books in, and you've got a fourth book in development. Is that correct? Yep. That's it. Mm, so you heard it here. Just a second. Yeah, there they are. There, product placement. Oh, oh, no, oh all, we've all got them. Yeah, that's right. Product placement. Good man. Good man. We need a virtual, that's a virtual signing, please. Yeah. No. <laughs> uh, so and um, why I think I'm gonna uh, before I embarrass you too much. Why I think you're 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 probably the best hunting writer getting around is because when I read your books, it's not about hunting. It's about something that resonates far deeper than the the process of I took my tika out and I saw something and I shot it and it's dead on the ground. Um, there's so much more to uh, what you read in your, what I read anyway out of your stories is much more about this idea of a life, not a lifestyle, but a life of engagement with with wild animals and 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 wild places. And I and I so that's why I was really excited to get you on because uh, as people know, I write and I kind of. I don't want to write like you, but I certainly, for me, your writing is inspiring to me the way I write. So, um, and that's enough of that flowery stuff. We'll get, we won't embarrass you anymore. So, uh, I'll give you a chance to uh, to respond if you want, and if not, we'll jump straight into some questions. Before you do that, though, okay. Um, the other thing that I really find, you, you've obviously gone to a lot of work with the books, holding the books. Uh, I'm reading them in reverse order because it's the way they that I found them. Um, picking the like I do, I read a lot of ebooks and I listen to a lot of books online. But picking up these these books that you've you've obviously had a lot of um, input into the way they look and feel. You know the the you know there's, there's a lot of beautiful photos in them. Even the paper itself is of a quality that's that's nice to pick up and feel. So you know you don't I don't I don't tend to find a lot of books that present themselves the way that these ones do, and it just makes me want to keep picking them up and reading them. Um, for me to, to, I know a measure of a good book when my five-year-old five comes and sits down and wants me to read it out loud, and uh, I, I try very hard not to get annoyed with that because you know when you're deep into a book and you get pulled off subject, um, it's hard. But I, he, he's only five, and and I sit down, I sit down with him last night. He's like, read me some more of that book, Dad. So I read that, and, you know, it's something that he wants to do. So I look forward to hearing stories about your son maybe in book number four because that'll that'll excite the young fellas. That's awesome. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, and yeah, I re reiterate, there's two books that I've read aloud to my 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 oldest son, Sand, Sand, Sand County Almanac and your first book. Though, oh, that's awesome. I, the only thing I've got to say about that is when you, when you write your first book and you ask for what I want to write, I asked you to write 
to mark the greatest hunter that's ever lived, and you didn't do that, by the way. So I just just ticked that in. That's not in. No, I wanted that. I, I wanted a, you know, my I, I wanted that in my in in the pre-op. But let's move on. So next one. Yeah. How did you get? No, obviously not here. But how did you get to be such a well-regarded um, and such a well-published um, writer? Because I think for many people. That's almost like, you know, we see people on online, you know, we see people on video, we read books like Boddington's books and stuff like that. And it's almost like it's a, it's not, it's like a world that, you know, people can't, how do you, how do you access it or how does that happen? So what was your journey to get to there? I don't know, it would be a long journey, but what's, what's the, what's the backstory? It's, it makes me, the backstory makes me feel like a dinosaur because it's, totally different to how young guys get into it now which is primarily through product mm -hmm. um, as you say you know this is Dave Dave is promoting product X uh, Dave shoots something and this is a story of how Dave got the big one but he couldn't have done it without the XP100 hashtag product placement um, that's that's the way up now and that's just a commercial reality um, but my mine was very dinosaur I mean I, I started as a 10, 10 year old um, hunting hares and stuff like that. Um, then moved on to ducks and did did the classic apprenticeship of very small game up to ducks, then up to pigs, then up to deer, then up to international. And each of those is five, 10 years kind of thing. So it's a very long apprenticeship. But hand in hand with that, I started at the same age reading a lot of hunting writers. So I grew up cutting my teeth on Nick Harvey and Philip Holden and mm. Shad Bolt and all those guys from that generation, Cole Allison. Um, and I, I'm the kid who saved his lunch money to buy hunting magazines, not car magazines. I was, I was that kid. Um, so between serving the long apprenticeship of, of coming up through all the different kinds of game and kind of earning your stripes with each one, um, I was also doing the reading and, and getting more sophisticated. So you move on from, from Nick and Philip Holden, although I still have all my old books from those guys. Um, you move up to Robert Rourke and Gene Hill and um, some of the historical writers and all those guys. So the, the reading became more sophisticated as the hunting became more sophisticated. So there's two apprenticeships traveling together. But that's over like, I can't even remember when my first book was published. I was in my 40s. Um, I'd been writing for magazines since the mid '90s, um, so there's there's again the apprenticeship in terms of not just the reading but also the writing. I started out writing for, um, you know, just basic hunting magazines in Oz and New Zealand in the mid '90s, and it was then 15 years before a book a book deal came up. So in other words, it's been kind of slow. Um, hmm. Whereas uh, I see young guys who are 24 years old who who are social media legends um, and, and have their own sponsors and all of those things. And I don't, I don't resent them, their lack of apprenticeship. I, I actually think I'm maybe slightly jealous because it feels like a real fast track to it. Whether they stay and what they understand, I, I, I can't say, depends on the individual. So hmm. long answer for a short hmm. question, sorry. No, no, I think, it, I think it's... So was you... 
was it a family pursuit for you or was it something you discovered for yourself that 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 initial you know kickoff point um my dad did hunt but he was a he was too busy and and um you know he was a farmer by by profession so he those guys it, they just live a life uh mm. where there isn't a whole lot of time so i would say he gave me my start and he taught me to shoot um and he was with me on the very small game stuff like hairs and things um from there i i learned a lot from reading but i mainly learned from mentors you know you find people who know what they're doing and you hang around and you make yourself useful and you do the firewood and you do the billy and you, you carry stuff and you and you learn uh that's, so that's also the apprenticeship and i didn't i didn't get that from dad because he just it wasn't physically able to do it and and he, he was busy yeah, because I mean, for so many people, the the you know, there is no longer the the ability to serve an apprenticeship because the, you know they don't they don't have that that grounding in the in in the in you know at the very beginning. So they're looking for 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 ways to start. But it's almost like I I know I want to start, but I don't know how to start, so I can't start. And we get in this cycle. And I mean, look, I I'd readily admit that's for me. You know, there there is no. Well, must be somewhere in the in the deep dark recesses, but um, there's no there was no connection to hunting from the start with, so it was something that I you know it was a self motivation for me. It was, and so those things like you know reading those books and that came much later because I did know those books existed, mm -hmm. so I didn't know about. So there's so much that you don't know that you find along the way. But what I find really interesting is that transition point because you know that's for so many people that's no longer the case one access is hard it's hard to get a place where you can just go shoot rabbits and things like that now of course queensland duck hunting you might as well you know we might as well be hunting pterodactyls or be easier um so that those kind of it's really interesting to hear that we've we've heard that time and again with with with, with people have been had the opportunity to build that 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 period of time of learning and developing but as you said you were kind of running to at the at the same time so how do you go from red deer to cape buffalo though because that's 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 evil knievel stuff you know <laughs> that's not that's not jumping a ditch that's that's a that's a really big jump to go from from i mean you know we've had people on here and there's stuff on the wall no one's had that on the wall behind what you know what you've got there you're you're winning the prize of what people's got on the wall you know we don't we haven't seen that yet so that's a huge jump so how do you go from hunting red deer to hunting cape buffalo um can we just jump back for a moment to the sure starting off and then come forward to the red deer buffalo thing sure look when i said find a mentor it, it doesn't have to be your dad or a relative. Mm. The, 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 I don't. I'm not a public figure. I don't speak at a lot of things. But um, occasionally, you know, you you get up stuck up in front of a crowd at a gathering, and the question is always, um, how do you get started? And you see this online as well. Mm. And everyone will chime in. There'll be comment, 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 comment everywhere. And it's oh, buy yourself a ticket. Buy yourself a loophole. Buy yourself a Schmidt and Bender. Um, you'll need this. You'll need that. There's two things you really need. One is a good bastard to learn from. Someone who can show you the ropes, not just about how to gut a deer or how to shoot or whatever, but 
how to how to be genuinely a good companion and a good hunter in terms of what how you think, not just what you can do with a knife or with a with a with a rifle. And those people are out there, and they do they do offer to help people. Um, it's amazing how many of them are, are, are actually out there. I, I know dozens of them here. People who take people out to shoot, and it could be something very basic like pigeons off a peacock, but they've never shot before. And by the end of the afternoon, they've knocked a few down and they're going, oh wow, I, I can actually do this. Mm. Those people are out there. You just got to put in the effort to find them. And that's always been the case. Um, and you know, they'll set you right. It, it, you don't have to hang around and bother them for 10 years. I'm just saying a couple of trips in and they'll get you started. And once you're started, you, you can start to figure things out by yourself. So on the, the red deer to buffalo thing, um, it is a jump, but it depends on temperament. Um, I was very interested in seeing the world. Uh, I wanted to get out and do stuff. And the hunting was part of that, but it wasn't just all of it. So I, I did jobs and I worked and... Um, you know, spent time in different countries. But if you've got that um, kind of adventurous angle to you, um, yeah, it is, a, it is a step up, but that doesn't matter. And it's in part because you've actually served that apprenticeship. I remember very clearly thinking on a couple of those occasions, you've trained all your life for this. Don't sweat it. You know what to do. You, you've done this a lot before. And I think that that's where the, the kid who's come in, the product placement angle, the fast track that's where he will start to come unglued because mm. he hasn't actually got that depth of experience that muscle memory that sense of what the game is going to do now uh this this one's about to go the body language all of that comes from hundreds of hours thousands of hours spent mucking around with animals um and i don't think you can do that fast track so i didn't feel it was that big a jump because i'd, I'd served the time um, is, the, is the, the bottom line of that. Having said that, it'll clean your pipes out. You 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 know you're alive, um, and the, it's a roller coaster of emotion because as things go well and then crash badly, and the stalk is blown, and the next stalk is blown, and then something else goes wrong, it it really saps you emotionally because you you've invested so much in getting this right. Um, yeah. So, but the pressure comes. The pressure comes because right. you've put yourself into a pretty rare situation. It's not like going up the back and, and chasing another red deer. You know, you're, you've put a lot of time and effort to get where you are chasing this Cape Buffalo and that's the extra pressure, yep. I guess. Yeah, there, there's the extra pressure of also not getting it wrong for the guys because they're the ones who will have to help you sort it out. Mm. Uh, no one wants a mess. Um, and it's like that every time with, with things like buffalo or anything that could hurt you. You, you don't want it to become a mess. Um, fortunately, it never has. Um, but I will say that as a very young guy, I think the adrenaline was just as high for things that you would now think of as commonplace. You know, when you're, when you're 11, a hare that you have to actually stalk. Um, I, I had sweaty palms and, and was, was, you know, um, fighting nerves. Um, because it was the biggest deal in the world at that time. Mm. So I guess every step of the way has been, this is the biggest deal in the world. That's a red stag. Oh my God, look at that thing. It makes your hair stand up. <laughs> so every single one of them has been kind of the biggest thing in the world at that time. So that's why... Yeah, I, guess, yeah, and I, I guess for me, it's the same 
the whole journey, whether you're chasing hares, rabbits, you know, foxes, then onto deer, it's the same process. You still got to go through that same process, whether it's buffalo, you've still got to find the animals, you've still got to stalk the animals, you still got to get close enough in for a shot. It's that solid grounding that you need, which you're saying that people don't get these days with the fast track method. Um, but it's still the same all the way through, no matter what the end animal is. For me, it's the same. But yes, I mean, adrenaline levels change when the thing can kill you, but use the same grounding, same principles all the way through and, you know, you're going to have a good time. Yeah, Certainly, I mean, um, yeah. Let's, let's be... Go on, sorry. Say, go on, sorry, yep. Oh, I was just going to say, you know, having said that, it is worth remembering that chasing tar here on the South Island by yourself is is dangerous. Mm. Um, whereas at Cape Buffalo, you can't legally hunt by yourself. You you have to be with a professional. And so they're sharing some of the risk. And yes, it can go wrong. But there's plenty of other hunting that has danger in it. Um, and I wouldn't... I, I'd, Despite the reputation, I know buffalo, black death, all of that stuff. And yeah, they can be can be very nasty. But if you do your job, they fall over, like anything else does. So well, I would rate solo alpine hunting as just as dangerous, if not more so. You get caught out by the weather, you take a fall. Um, there's the recent case, I won't go into details, of a terrific young Aussie guy who took a fall mm. over here and, and he's no longer with us. Um, so yeah, I, I I don't think we should overstate um, Cape Buffalo and not realise that a lot of it has has an element of danger to it. Well, as I say, you know, the dangerous, most dangerous thing about going hunting is getting there. Generally, driving in the car to get there. <laughs> that's a, yeah. that's where the real danger is. So so yeah, I oh, look and I I I think that's a really good point. If you know, it's um, it's the and it's good to hear that that's the case, you know. I, I, I mean, I certainly experienced that myself. Um, we hunted buffalo last year, um, and it was, it was a, it was, it was, was certainly wasn't easy, you know. We that we were up there five full days hunting. We reckon we probably walked about a hundred k's plus over that time. Um, and from you know, for, for me, it came together on the last afternoon. For you too, Ian, did you had you take one before that afternoon? John, I no, took no, one the was, day. John, I took one the day last. before, and went out that morning, that Friday morning. So yeah, it all kind of came rolling together, and it's funny how it rolled together because um, we were all kind of not too far away from each other geographically. So um, it's you know, but that was. Yeah, that was a, a wholly different experience because it was a, such a new experience. You know, I'd, I'd never hunted buffalo before. And in fact, other than, you know, on a property, I'd never actually seen a buffalo, let alone seen one with a rifle in my hand. So that that all came together quite quite interesting how it all formed together. But it was interesting to say, like, you were saying, like, you know, your apprenticeship just kind of went, okay, same, same. You got to do. You got to do the job here. You've got to. You've got to put this thing down. You've got to approach it the same way. And uh, it made me think about something. I think it was Michael Hussey said when he when he got the baggy green for Australia, and they were saying because he was you know a superstar out of the bat out of the, basically out of out of the blocks. And they said, "Why are you so good?" He said, "I've been playing on this ground for you know fifteen years in first class cricket. I've just got a different hat on today. You know, I've played against all these guys. I know you know, but it's just a different hat. And that idea of that 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 period of time of developing allowed you to kind of go well different game different place different responsibilities but ultimately 
same as a hair I've got to put this thing down I've got to put it down you know I've got to do it put it down properly that being there's the a, case a big... Sorry, yep go, go ahead on. no I was going to say that being the say... case for you what's what is the what is that one for you you know what, what is it the African game is it is it is it wing shooting what's that one that really resonates for you or is there one I, I, I can't I can't do one honestly oh, okay I, I still get absolutely lit if I walk in behind a pointing dog with a shotgun yeah uh, a pointing dog on point a pointing dog that swings into a stone-cold point and you walk into that is still absolute magic after all these years after 25 years of bird dogs um, there's there's the ball we want um, and you get a signal from a tracker and he's signaling you you know put something in the chamber because we're going to go hot in a minute um, that is also an electric moment it's full of electric moments and if you only get electrified by one of them you're kind of missing out mm -hmm. um, that's why I'm a hopeless generalist and not particularly good at any one thing because I <laughs> kind of love them all and so if you spread yourself that thin You'll, you'll never be an expert at, at, at all of them. So you end up being mediocre at most of them. And that's okay. So sorry, I can't, I can't give you the one. No, I like it. Because I mean, I, I, I like to admit that ultimately I'm a frustrated pig hunter. Um, you know, that's for me, that that's really the one. It's, uh, you know, messy old banking. That's, that's, that's it for me. That's if, if I could do one thing for the rest of my life, that'd be it. Because, um, uh, as as a you know, I'm a hopeless pig hunter, but I think that's why I'm so. That's part of the part of the the mystique of it, and the same with wing shooting. I hardly ever wing shoot, so when I do, I, 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 I it's it's fantastic. Even if we're just shooting pigeons or something like that, you know. In fact, shooting pigeons is actually quite an exciting way. I've shot pheasants and I shot pigeons, and I to be honest, I found pigeons more exciting. They, they duck more. They you know there was much more to it. So it's interesting that. You know that that idea about a, a generalist hunter, and I think that comes through in the books too. The, you know, they're not such and such on this kind of game, or such. And, it's just about the experience itself. And one of the ones that around that experience that I I found quite interesting was, and I might have got this. Just correct me if I got this wrong. But when you were hunting in Argentina, and you were wing shooting in Argentina, I think I think you and I spoke about it once. That you know, basically, you were door knocking for one of a better word for properties to get on and shoot their pigeons and i i thought that was you know most people are a bit embarrassed to go and door knock in the brisbane valley you know you're you're in argentina you know bobbing up the shotgun hey and you know and trying to door knock on people's property to shoot pigeons i i just thought that was you know that that that's that's high adventure to me that the fact that you went to another country and, and started doing that well, a lot of those really big pigeon places are tied up. The Estancias have got them tied up for tourists, mm -hmm. uh, American tourists and things. So, um, but they're they're quite palatial, and I was almost backpacker level. So it was it was go door knocking or or forget it. Um, and you can see these vast fields of sunflower and, and sorghum, milo, and everything, and you know the birds are there. Um, they thought it was hilarious. Crazy gringo wants to shoot pigeons, but knock yourself out and kind of thing. Once, once, once you can make it, make yourself understood. They're very. I mean, rural Argentinians are very gregarious, social, um, hospitable people. 
Mm. So once they got their head around what I was trying to do, it was like, yeah, sure, knock yourself out. We're going to have a barbecue later. Once you finish with that, rock on over, you know. So it was it was that kind of thing. Um, a lot of it was put together on a shoestring as a young bloke um, because it had to be. Uh, and so you pull all those little stunts like that and they start to add. But you still get the experiences. Um, and I had a young guy come with me and I, I couldn't speak enough Spanish to really have a proper conversation. But he had a, a nice visual and we, we went up chasing, um, we shot doves, but they got a little bit dull after a while. Uh, then we chased perdiz, which are like a little um, partridge, I guess is how it translates, but they're not really a partridge. They're actually like a very tiny emu almost, but <laughs> looking like a game bird. Um, and they, you shoot them over pointers. And that was just awesome. What was it so, called, Peter? Perdiz, P-E-R-D-I-Z. Um, they're actually a, okay. it's scientific. They're a species of tinamou, um, which is flightless birds, like 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 the emus and the ostriches, but they're small. Like a, or a bustard or something like that. Imagine, imagine a very small bustard about a foot high, I suppose. Oh, okay. So like a little roadrunner type of thing. Uh, yeah, and they do they they do run because they won't necessarily hold steady for a dog. So this dog Etan, he sometimes he would track them for eighty, a hundred meters before the flush. Um, and they are the best eating game bird on the planet, hands down. Um, so that was spectacular, but it all came from knocking on a door and making a fool of yourself and, and having a go, you know? So if you don't ask, you don't get. Mm. I just think that's fantastic that you actually, yeah. you know, was it, you know, as I said, it wasn't like you're in you know, country Victoria, you're in country Argentina with, with loving up with backpack and a shotgun and going, hey. Because you can. Hola. Almost bang, like bang, a pheasant, <laughs> flat, flat. Like a pheasant hen, Pete. <laughs> mm, sorry, say again. They're almost like a pheasant hen. Yes, if you imagine a pheasant hen with no tail. Oh, okay. That, mm, that yeah. gives you a pretty, pretty good look at what they're like. Mm. But they, you can see the difference in the head. Um, yeah, when when you Very get clear. close up to them, uh, the the head is not like a conventional game bird, um, but absolutely delicious, beautiful game bird. Plenty of them around. So you're not doing anybody any harm. And, you know, walking in over a pointing dog, how good is that? So yeah. it, isn't, it isn't all, you know, Big Five and, and um, testosterone safari stuff. I, that was a, that's, that's a lifetime memory, that one. And it cost basically nothing except some dignity. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I just, as I said, I think it was fantastic. But, you know, you went to another, I mean, I've travelled overseas and I've gone to places where, you know, you don't speak the, 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 the language and you know and you you know you you do all the crazy things to try and get understood and i'm talking about you know trying to get a drink out of a shop you know that on saint let alone hey i want to take over no field of yours and shoot yeah, birds I, with this uh, shotgun that i'm carrying with me i was in germany Please. just to just to accentuate that i was in germany and i was i couldn't speak the language and i i needed to change some money for a uh, for a train ride and I had 50 euros and I was dressed by what I can only assume looked like a hobo because I had what I called my bum jacket on because it made me look like one and my beanie down over my ears mm. and I probably hadn't shaved for four days and I walked into a restaurant and basically what came out of my mouth was I need money uh, what I was trying to say was can you change this 50 euros for some train money and I got escorted out pretty quickly I'm not quite sure how that would have gone if I had a shotgun and I, just, anyway, I, I get, I get, I get it. That's it. Hard work. That's uh, it. I think that's hilarious. I, 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 I always remember that one. I thought that that that's 
that's you know hunting adventure on you know as you said on a shoestring that 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 would be hard to pull off now in anywhere you know let alone in a in a country where you don't speak the the language the other one that always was quite say again i think you could still do it today in argentina Um, yeah and that might be the difference this this isn't rural victoria those guys Mm. all shoot uh, they've got pigs and deer and stuff wandering because it was all introduced the same as Australia and New Zealand. Yeah. They've got all sorts of stuff wandering around. And those big estancia owners, they, they've they inherited money and, and large estates and they shoot. Um, so the minute you catch their interest, like, who who's this crazy gringo? And, and what, and, but hunting is a, hunting is an international language mm. and it leads on to a whole that's why Wild South, that first book, is actually called Wild South because I discovered that everywhere I went in the Southern Hemisphere, it always it always turned out kind of the same. You end up standing at a barbecue with lots of meat sizzling, holding a beer, talking about rugby, and what are we going to go try hunt tomorrow? <laughs> and whether it's Argentina or South Zimbabwe or Namibia or or Longreach or the territory doesn't matter you still end up in that same spot the only difference is sometimes the language is a bit harder but Mm. the culture is almost shared and it's very different to the northern hemisphere where there's more civilization people are a bit more detail driven you know oz new zealand argentina southern african countries we're all the same culturally in in some ways in that it's make it up as you go uh number eight why we'll solve it um, if it's stuck or if it's not stuck, tape it. <laughs> um, you know, we, we, we have that colonial frontier culture of yep. just make it work. Uh, whereas the Northern Hemisphere has more regulations, more rules, more inspectors, more clipboards, more everything. It's more more civilized, I guess. So it's, I just took a gamble with these guys that they would give me a go, and, and they did. Oh, uh, yeah. I, I, it's a, it's a certainly... Having hunted in England, I I I I know exactly what you what you mean by that, and it's not so much well. It's not only regulation; it's also there seems to be a well. It is. It's there's a significant difference in traditional approach. You know, the approach is different in itself. It's wholly different. Though there is there is there is an approach that does more align with what we experience, but it's. You know, it's stratified. So I've been lucky enough to, to shoot pigeons behind a blind, which kind of reminded me of, you know, kind of rabbit shooting here. But I've also been to the estate where you shoot, you know, a pheasant off a, off a peg. And yeah. it's amazing the difference between those two worlds. In Within, you know, 10 kilometres of each other, there is just two wholly different worlds. So it was that was... It's interesting, that observation that, you know... There is a lot. There's a lot more like people like us in one way or another than than you might think. I think that's quite an interesting, uh, you know, approach to it. Yeah, I mean, for me, being South African, I can fully resonate with your um, the wild South, standing around the barbecue, having you know, eating meat and drinking beer. Um, I then lived in the UK for twelve years and obviously started hunting there and found the experience very, very different, and really longed for that. I guess that wild south that you know they 
that that the way that I grew up, I didn't grow up hunting. I started hunting much older, but I did experience, you know, the, the standing around the fire, drinking beer and eating meat. And, and then it got exposed to the, the hunting element of that as well. Uh, and really longed for it, which is one of the reasons why we moved to Australia um, was to re- sort of rekindle that, that lifestyle. But yeah, that certainly resonates um, with me very, very much so. So if we kind of divide the world in the north and south and we, we kind of take a little bit push over towards the west what's your what's your feel or experiences in with north america then because you know that's i always one i often wonder i feel that in many ways we kind of more align with north america than we do with europe in terms of the way we go about things though it is very different but there is there is a lot of similarity in 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 the approach and especially with the public land over there so what uh, you've had some experiences in North America? Yeah, yeah, I have. Um, I, I chased uh, elk a few times, whitetail, muleys, things like that. Um, I wouldn't say I have a huge amount of North American experience because as a young guy, trying to do North American hunts using New Zealand pesos is a very expensive <laughs> exercise. Um, you you've only got so many kidneys, eh? Yeah, exactly, exactly. So... <laughs> Um, chase the ones I wanted. I mean, I always hankered for for elk. Um, so, yeah, I, I know the scene over there. Oh, I'm waterfowling and stuff like that as well. But mm-hmm. um, they are still very different. They do have public land, but you have to see the invisible engine behind the whole North American hunting mm-hmm. movement is mm-hmm. is a thing that hardly anybody's ever heard of. the The Pittman Robinson Act, mm-hmm. Robinson mm-hmm. Act, drives this massive financial engine um, where basically every box of ammo every hunting vest a little bit gets shaved off not as an extra tax but but from it to pay for hunting fishing game departments new habitat hunting leases so huge amount millions of acres of land have been squared away by Pittman Robinson for Robinson for hunting uh, and we don't have that no. They also have one ma- other massive difference that we don't have, and that is their game is native and ours is not. Mm. And so that yep. opens us up to the feral pest argument. No one is ever going to say, let's shoot bighorn sheep from a chopper because there seem to be quite a few of them around. Um, whereas our game is subject to that because it's not indigenous. So similar, lots of public land, different, massive engine paying for it, which we don't have, and the, the native game versus introduced game species. And it's that last one that is really, really starting to, to bite in Oz and New Zealand uh, in terms of attacks from the green movement, um, opportunistic politicians. They, they can seize that difference and really blow it up and make it a big deal. Yeah, well, very, yeah, very true. I mean, the, 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 deer, well, the, the lack of deer strategy is out at the moment. And... Um... That's wholly based on, you know, some outrageous statements about deer becoming like rabbits, which is now I've seen more and more. If they're if they're like rabbits, then they they've been here over a hundred years. They better start soon. <laughs> so, but yeah, it's I, I I suppose with me the 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 having not hunted the U.S. but having hunted England, I when I see what the U.S. hunting is like and their approach, I suppose I feel a, a lot more. I suppose connection to their approach it seems to be more of a you know self 
self-driven you're 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 in you're leading the activity though of course there is there's guided things on it but a lot of it is people actually doing it themselves and i think that's a, a what i see what i what i don't see when or when we go to england I know it's very hard for you to do that yourself some people do but it's a very hard thing to do so and that's my experience with England. i haven't been into europe the big difference between the us and the uk is um there's the conservation model is different in the uk it's much more based around money personal yeah. personal good personal assets um but also class i mean let's call a spade a spade it's it's very class driven still um the shooting you're the the average aussie or kiwi will far more enjoy rough shooting what they call rough shooting in the yes UK, yeah than, that's it more driven shoot um where you've got to spend as much as the family car just on the clothes that's mm. before you even pull a trigger um, you you better be dressed for it the right way, or, or or and so forth. Now, there are a lot of English people who will push back and say, "Oh, look, you know, it, it's it's there's it's shooting available for all classes," and that is absolutely true. Mm. But it isn't available if you don't have the money. Mm. Uh, rough shooting or going out for a day even on grass can be is in the reach of a normal person if they're prepared to do what I do, which is just squirrel money away constantly um, at the expense of other things. You, you can afford it. Um, but in the States, you can still get a tag for most things fairly cheaply over the counter, even at a Walmart, you know, and um, and go out and get a, a whitetail or whatever. Um, the UK is not like that. Europe definitely isn't. Um, there it's also driven by class and, and money. And you, you you probably want a title or a, a fawn, fawn in front to, to really be a player in, in European hunting. Um, well, you know, the aristocracy is is von Württemberg type names. Um, yep. Joe, Joe, Joe Smith doesn't get it much of a go on uh, over there. Um, so yeah, they're both they're both kind of money money and class operations. Terrific hunting, but it's for a certain kind of person, and you you also got to enjoy the company that you get because when when the sun goes down, um, you got to feel comfortable with the people you're with, mm. and. Um, I'm, I'm more and more looking at hunts from a point of view of, well, the overall experience rather than am I going to get Douglas score of 350 or whatever. Um, it's, got, it's got a sticking. You go to so much trouble to do a, an international hunt. It's a huge amount of effort, especially if you travel with guns and you end up with paperwork like this to, to make it work. The whole experience needs to be what you're chasing, not, not the, the head on the wall. So um, that's just that, that's a personal view. Um, everybody hunts differently. That's just my own take on it. Yeah, well, again, I agree. You know, what I the, I've hunted deer in the UK, and that was what you might call rough shooting. Um, but yeah. it was because it was because of connections. You know, it was um, it, you, you wouldn't have been able to do it if you didn't know those people. Um, I was lucky enough to get invited onto some onto some you know. Well, actually, I was hunting on the place where they they filmed Downton Abbey, so yeah. that it was yeah. It's 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 yeah. It's not it's not it's it's not Joe Blog's farm. It was you know, over the distance is this massive building. Yeah. So yeah, I was lucky enough to 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 have an opportunity to hunt on that. But it was they let it was kind of rough hunting the way as they describe it when we were doing it ourselves, um, and some of the best. Wing shooting, I did. There's one afternoon we actually did what they call again a rough hunt, where we literally just went off for a walk, 
um, and I was using a, a Remington uh, 20 gauge auto loader and we were just walking along and the birds had come up and we'd shoot them and that was just that was actually as I said one of the best afternoons wing shooting I've ever had but that was yeah that was rough shooting but again even that would be very difficult for someone who didn't have the connections you know that was that was yep. private property that someone knew about and there was lots of it was fun and it was um as they call rough but there was a lot of machinery behind it to make that happen and I was you know very grateful for the people to go in that place and then there was this thing in the middle that they called a farm hunt which was kind of like tweed on a farm so you still wore tweed, but you drank tea in the uh, in the tractor shed and you ate cake in the tractor shed, and you went out and it was still on still on um, a pegs, but the pegs were a bit, you know, well you stand here and someone people brought their own dogs and stuff like that. So it was kind of like a middle ground thing, but again, you know, that was that was still. For many people, that would have been an exclusive event, though it was still at like that. So it was it was really quite eye opening to see see that. And again, that's why I, I I go back to you know your experiences in Argentina, which is so very different to that. Which is so um so I, that's it's interesting to get that perspective. But another one I wanted to ask you about was about. And I can't remember the finer details, but you ate. A, was it a pig you ate once that nearly put you under? You ate some kind of pig that made you really crook once. I was one of the stories. This is on the flight, getting sick on the flight. No, I think you said you 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 you, you hunted a, a a pig or a peccary or something like a pig, and they and you ate it, and they said no, that's the wrong size to eat, or you ate it, and it made you really crook. Have I got that right? Mm. Might be a slightly cross wire there. The, the yeah, it might be. I, I can remember, John, I will relate to this because you have done the QF63, QF64 flights from Sydney to Joburg. Mm -hmm. um, it's a long haul. And if you are if you fall seriously, seriously crook in the first 20 minutes, you've got a long, long way mm -hmm. to go. Mm -hmm. um, I, I had... this. I wouldn't do this again, but I'd eaten um, sardines the night before because they have the big sardine run off South Africa at certain times. Mm -hmm. And um, they weren't actually off. I think that there are times when they eat toxic algae and, and they're, they're actually bad for you, but they're not rotten, they're just toxic. Either way, um, I got on the flight and then I had 13 hours of massive, massive illness. Um, I dropped four and a half kg on the flight, super dehydrated because I couldn't even keep um, hydration fluids down. Um, so yeah, that, that wasn't great, but look, that, that comes with international travel. Um, mm. If you go to developing countries, uh, sometimes something will come unglued and that's just the price you pay for, for doing it. I had a, I had a <laughs> dodgy <laughs> slice of pizza in Cairo and that put me in a bad way all the way through to London. Uh, yeah. Bombay Deli, take your pick. I mean, oh, yeah. disgusting. <laughs> I got um, food poisoning in Scotland, mate, <laughs> in that developing country. <laughs> I thought I was going to die. Yes, was, my uh, philosophy on this is the same as, as um, horseback hunts because a lot of guys won't do horseback hunts. And I'd love to. to them I say, mm. pain fades but antlers are forever. Yes. It's the, same, <laughs> it's the same with sickness. Yep. Uh, oh, most definitely. Yep. Thundering will come and go, 
but the horns will be there forever. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There's yeah. a few good sayings that need to go in the back of the yeah. book. Um, but I, I, I completely resonate with uh, your your comments about um, shooting over a dog. I've been training um, my wirehead pointer through. You probably know Paul Michaels uh, in New Zealand. He does the big game indicating dog uh, yep. blueprint yep. program. But I've been training her that way. And this year, um, look, every year that you go out for the rut or the raw, you know, you have aspirations of a of a quality buck or what have you. But um, and th- this year was no different for me except I had two other things on my mind. One was um, Missy's been trained as an indicator now for uh, three years, and while she's been with me as we've shot animals, she's never been 100% the reason that I shot and then relocated the animal. She'd never put me full point on something, and that's largely to do with, like a lot of the New Zealand hunting, you can go up the local mountain range and you know it's public land and and you can you know pretty much it comes down to how much effort you want to put in uh, how much time you got off for us going hunting if you don't have private land access really it's a seven hour drive to somewhere Mm. reasonable um which is what this was now like i said i've shot animals with missy um but i've she's either pointed them then i've found them and shot them um she hasn't gone full lock on them so i've never had that full experience with her over the three years so I've always had that in the back of my mind that that, that that opportunity was going to come up. The second one, obviously, is um, we had a lot of young new hunters in camp. Well, not necessarily young, but <coughs> excuse me, new hunters in camp that wanted to learn how to get that animal out of the bush and home. So I was really trying to get an animal back into camp to, to show people how to break them down and prepare them and get them out. But ultimately, I wanted to take that buck. Um, but the best experience for me out of all of that, in the end was that Missy put me on full point with a, a a young spiker that I would absolutely walk past after, you know, four or five hours in the bush. Um, winded it, pointed it, went on full lock. I shot it. She stopped. She tracked it. She took me to it. And we could get that whole thing back out for everyone to experience the breakdown. For me, after having gone in New Zealand and shooting a red stag and, and enjoying that, and taking a fellow buck that I thought was pretty cool and going up the territory with, with these guys and, and shooting buffalo. Each one of those experiences was awesome, but this for me was a really great experience because of all of the effort that's gone into it. So um, I understand what you're saying. It's not about necessarily the, the big fellow on the wall behind you, but the experience that you're aiming to get. And I think if you put a lot of time in and, like you say, get the mentors um, to help you out, then you can you can really make a good start of it. Uh, and, and, and I think half the reason or if not the whole reason we put this podcast together to start with was maybe to help shortcut the process um nothing's going to get away from that apprenticeship that you talk about i think that's super important if you can get that experience but we had so many people up in queensland that um couldn't get the access and didn't know how to start and and it's so it's so great even through this uh, rut and raw period the volumes of people now that are that are sending us photos and and pictures and and messages saying we've been watching we've been hearing you know you have these guests on they inspire us it's really great and now i've taken my first animal how great is this and i think that really uh, pushes the experience that's, along which is great so it's 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 such awesome. a good thing yeah it really is so well, um I, I don't want to harp on too much about that apprenticeship but just one one quick point before leaving it alone it extends to more than shooting technicals um I think, going back to Mark's point about Argentina, the apprenticeship extends to 
learning how to make relationships um, so that instead of knocking on doors, you get invited to come somewhere because you've built relationships. Yeah. Um, and the same way uh, that apprenticeship helps with things like actually pitching to the guy in Argentina. Because if you've leaned on enough farm gates and talked to enough cockies, you learn that the conversation isn't a straight line. It's going to go around in circles a bit and there'll be weather and, and there'll be all kinds of other things talked about um, before you, you get to the, the kind of point of it. And there's a natural moment in the conversation to do that. Mm. And you learn that through the apprenticeship. And that's possibly why things worked in Argentina, um, because there was that, that uh, experience of having done this before. Um, so I, I, it, comes, it comes back to that apprenticeship having more effects than just technical. Um, yeah. I think it opens yeah. doors to you, mm. put it that way. Oh, I think so. Uh, you if, know, Mark, if you take... yeah. Mark got weird because of, of relationships that he had built. So yeah, that's, yeah. that's part of it. Yeah. And on the flip side, the flip side of that is I was, I was, I was looking at a social media feed yesterday and I just I was blown away by um, just how rude people can be, um, and this wasn't you know outright rude at anyone specifically, but the the comment was, I really really want to go hunting in this area. Um, who can take me? And I hope you've got land access because I don't. Like that is the complete opposite of what you're talking. Okay. And like, yeah. how do you expect you're going to get anywhere? Sitting no. behind a keyboard, uh, it just blows my mind how people go with it. But anyway, I won't harp on about that. I was just mind blown about how arrogant those sorts of things are. But anyway, that's, it's 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 let's don't know, don't care, me 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 kind of stuff. Um, yeah, it's the absolutely. opposite of learning. So yeah, can we swing back to dogs for a sec? Because yeah. sure, uh, love to. I was just I was going to say earlier that I don't know there's many forms of hunting that aren't better for having a dog in it. Um, assuming it's you know somewhat capable and basically kind of does what it's asked to do. Um, <laughs> yeah, I suppose so. It doesn't run off. Well, you know, eat the uh, neighbour's sheep or anything. <laughs> eat the neighbour's sheep, stuff like that. But yeah. Well, I, I have hunted over bird dogs that were just a dot on the horizon with the occasional set of ears um, <laughs> appearing above the grass kind of thing. And they're, they're so you took fun. one. You didn't hunt over it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, not not my dog, by the way. But but assuming they're they're like at least five out of ten capable, um, every hunt is more memorable for having a dog on it. Uh, I yeah. think. And the classics, obviously, duck season with Labradors and all that kind of stuff. Pointing pointy dogs with with pointing birds. But you you talked about how I could see it in your face how happy you were with your your dog going on point and actually completing the whole cycle for you of behavior mm. um but they pop up in all kinds of places i mean mm. john will know that there's virtually no ph in southern africa who doesn't get around with a jack russell or something in nope. the back always a jack um, russell they they all they they all do and weirdly enough jack russells work really well for big big dangerous game yeah um because they're small enough to travel in the truck and they can't outrun you like a big dog can and you, the white you see against the red. But the main thing is when they come up against a big animal, and I mean, I've seen this with a hippo, they'll buzz around it like Sputnik and keep it interesting. <laughs> entertained. Slightly entertained, but not threatened. Yeah. Because if yeah. you send out a ridgeback or something massive, a, 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 you know, a kudu will just spin and run off because yeah. that's a big dog. But a mm. little, little yapper just keeps them pinned. And so it's a no contact 
kind of thing. They're not they're yeah. not there to manhandle the game. They're just there to keep it occupied while you follow up. So dogs, I just like dogs in hunting. Put it that way. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and I've found uh, like Missy's a she's a she's a probably a fairly small female wire hair. She comes from that um, uh, that European Drathus strain. If you like, so she was imported, but um, certainly she's. I'm always surprised when I see her with deer and they seem less threatened. If they see me, they're gone. If they see her, then they hang around a bit longer. But yeah. I just, it almost I just holds them. Enjoy <laughs> the dog <There> experience. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, and, it's, it's and... great. In um, she's a great camp dog hangs around camp she's you know she's not a she's not a beggar she's just there she's part of it she's looking for a pat from everyone which is great um and you know just they they just enjoy it you you, they Mm. really really enjoy being out even wandering around the the farm here uh in the morning we'll go up and and do some bits and pieces and she you know she's she's only allowed to um hunt deer but she will still Mm. point out the odd bird um that's hanging out you can't take the bird dock out of them she'll um She'll see bunnies and she'll indicate to them, but she won't chase them. All of those sorts of things. It's just great to watch them. Watch them work. Yeah, yeah. yeah I got to hunt with our Labrador now. He's 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 a very old dog now. He's he just spends his day laying in the sun and sitting inside at night. But I'm, I'm I ha- I hunted goats with him a couple of times, and that was uh, you know really quite an uh, experience. And when we did the the famous farm stay pig hunt to. Hewarden or outside of Hewarden, you know, the seven days of supposedly pig action, you know, burning barrel pig action, where we did see a whole pig for the seven days. That was with um, English pointers. So I, we spent literally, there's photos of me looking after five days looking like I've lost about 20 kilos, you know, because we've just been 12 hours a day up there just chasing shadows. But um, with the, just sitting in the truck with the, with the pointers, it certainly... I I I I agree I, again. Agree with you, and I so much so that well, that's a conversation out of the house about you know our old boys on their way out. What, what we're gonna, what dog are we gonna get? And I've told them I want an indicating dog. So I'm not sure which one yet, but I I, I want to have a crack at the indicating dog. But I'd actually like a little one. I'd like a. I had a there was a guy I used to uh, have a lot to do with. He moved uh, in the state, and I haven't seen him as much anymore. He was a mad keen pig hunter, and he he loved Jack Russell. Like, you reckon he used to go up and bite him on the balls, and like, <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> and he used to he'd nip him, and they'd get really angry, and they they would they, you know they he'd, it it would bother them so much, you know he could walk up and basically hit him with a thirty thirty at about ten yards because this little thing was bothering them so much, and he used to nip him. Yeah. So yeah, so. We're thinking about what kind of dog that looks like for our next. And as I said, Paul's uh, indicating dog system looks like a looks like something that we want to get into ourselves. It's a great program. The thing about Jack what? Russells is they don't know they're Jack Russells. Yeah, yeah no, that's no, they, they think they're Ridgebacks. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> in your um, in the book that I'm reading at the moment, um, parts unknown. You talk a lot about the lab as your favourite dog in, in that book is that still the case i don't kind of i don't i don't even look when this one was written but is is the labrador still the the dog of choice for you well i mean you you, you match them to the kind of hunting you do in the terrain yep. you're in and here where we are uh, labs make a lot of sense because there's there's ducks five minutes away and 
rabbits and the blackberries and that kind of thick cover kind of stuff. But there aren't really any big quail fields, log, a big uh, need for a big running dog in big open areas. Mm. So, I mean, I was a GSP guy for, for decades. Yeah. Um, but where I live, labs make more sense. GSPs are not as good as labs in the water for ducks um, and, and, and so on. So, and also labs are kind of born half trained. Whereas mm-hmm. indicating dogs are alive. And half fed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I keep mine pretty lean. Now, if you'll see photos of him in there, he, he looks a lot more like a black pointer, really. Yeah. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, you've you got to take into account they're garbage guts dogs. They will eat mm. anything. But um, in terms of, of the terrain and the kind of hunting that is close to home here, um, labs are a good generalist. If I had access to big, sweeping, open prairie with, with game birds on it, I'd probably want to go back to pointing dogs. So I don't really have a preference. It's it's the tool for the job, really. Sure. Um, yeah. But with young kids, I don't have the time to devote to training bird dogs the way I did when I was single. Because um, it is a bit of a... It's like falconry. It's almost a lifestyle. Yeah. Um, yeah. If, yeah. You, if you really want to do it well. Because um, they're, they're required to do a lot of tricky things. You know, um, quarter, point, hold, steady to shot, retrieve, retrieve over water, um, you know, whereas a lab, a lab is kind of born half knowing what to do. He'll go and get stuff. He wants to, he wants to go and get stuff. Um, but I was going to come back to that whole point about dogs is the great company around the camp, but I'm utterly convinced they know exactly what we're trying to do. Yeah. This is not something we're forcing them to do through training. They, they know what we're trying to do and they'll apply their own solutions to it. If, if you don't have one, they'll, they'll figure it out, which is the, the sign that they know what the game is about. Oh, for sure, and I, I, um, I'm a firm believer that I, I haven't taught this one how to hunt. If I tried to teach a dog how to hunt, I'd fail. They know what yep. to do. They know how to hunt. They know what I have to do is tell her how I wanted to do it, how far in front I wanted to go. Yeah. When I, when, when she sees me put a rifle to the shoulder, she sits down, and she stays there until I let her go again. I just, you know, mm. a lot of people call it stop to the shot. I call it stop to the shoulder, um, which got me in a little bit of trouble yep. because. Uh, when I started to use a thermal this year, every time I put my thermal up, she'd stop, and I'd have to call her on, you know. And I was doing that every wow. twenty seconds. It mm. became a pain in the ass. So I've got to, but there's always something that you're trying to trying to teach them and do things. But um, no, I, I I just had to teach her how to be obedient, and mm. the various different whistles, hand and voice commands that I that I wanted to do stuff. Yeah. The rest she she knew, hundred percent. They, 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 they're born knowing. It's just we have to put some manners on it or to yep. work in yep. with how we do things. Mm. But if, if they if they have any hunting instinct, you're just putting manners on something that's already already there. And and understanding that a lot of what they do is pack behaviours, like what she's doing with stopping when you use the thermal. Wolves do that. Yep. You know, like that one stopped. I'm, I'm going to stop until we know what the, what's going on. Um, pointing is just an extended version of stopping when you see game. You know, those cunning German guys just bred the instinct to be more refined. Um, some GSPs, and I imagine some Y-hairs, I've never owned a Y-hair, when you tell them to flush, they won't just dive straight in. They'll run around the other side and flush towards you. Yeah. But the Umschlag, as it's called, the turnover. Um, that's an instinct to herd it towards, towards another wolf. So hmm. you're dealing with deep, deep programming here, and all you're doing is putting a veneer of manners over the top of it if, if the dog's yeah. any good yeah 
Uh, yeah, as you know, Jonathan McGee shared an acquaintance of us said to me when I was in England once that, you know, we were talking about dogs and he said, Labs are born half trained and spaniels die that way, yeah, something like that. Die, die half trained. <laughs> yep, I've heard that before. Yeah. yeah. Um, and yeah. there was a there's another great story I heard about. I can't think you told me that this, they used to hunt with someone who had a little, um, a little Jack Russell or something, a very small dog, you know, like, or a. And, um, Dashy or something? No, no, not Dashy. It was a, you know, a, some like a Jack Russell. Uh, well, it might have been a smooth, you know, not, not the wiry, but it used to, um, uh, it would quiver. And they'd kind of, and what they realized was, what they thought was the dog had picked up there was game about and knew that the shot was coming and it was quivering from the, from the shock from the shot sound that it was about to experience. So when they saw the dog start to go, they oh, there's something about here. You know, it would it would indicate by that way because it would start to have this little quiver because it knew the shot was coming and didn't like the shot. So, yeah, it was, uh, there's so many of those little things that, that that's the next experience we want to do is, uh, in, in our in our hunting life is, is, is hunt more with a dog. And since my boys... May very well be, you know, surly teens in five years who want anything to do with me anyway. I need, I need someone to go with. <laughs> well, they're great. They're a great mate to have on camp with. You find yourself talking to dogs by yourself all the time. Yeah, well, I've, oh, yeah. I've, 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 I do that all the time. But me and Bailey have very, very long and deep conversations about Australian politics. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, and 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 they'll always agree with you. That's the other thing. That's it. That's <laughs> it. Perfect person to talk to. Just so, um, listens for hours. Well, what I was going to say is it took me took me a long time to understand with dogs. Uh, the penny didn't drop for ages. You're talking about the quivering, how good they are at body language. Mm. They're constantly sending us little signals that half of us don't even get. Yeah. And they're reading us constantly in a way that we don't understand that they're doing. They see everything about our movement. That's why you can't lie to a dog. Um, they, they are picking up our signals we're probably getting one in ten of theirs. They're getting nine out of ten of ours. Yeah. Your dog knows what you're what you're about far more than you think he does. Um, and once you understand that, I think the the training gets a bit easier because you you realise you don't need to be quite so big and elaborate and loud and and full on. He, he he's got it. Yeah. He heard you the first time. You know. <laughs> um, if he's not doing it, it's because he's being a little shit. It's not because he didn't get it. Yeah, you're choosing to just choose to annoy. Um, and if he's a jack Russell, he will refuse to do it on principle. <laughs> <laughs> We're already like an hour and a half in, so I think it's about time we, we swing towards, you know, if you can, I know that it's in works at the moment, but um, your fourth book would be good to get an understanding what, what where where that's oh, heading. The scoop. Well, <laughs> I, know, I know you might not be able to talk about certain things, but if you can talk about any of that, would be great. Um, oh, it's a secret. Um, there you go. No, uh, look, it, it, broadly, it's about the theme of the third book was was uh, the moments of truth that come with hunting. Yep. Because we, we live in a time when truth and facts are they're just not popular anymore. So mm. uh, you know, feelings feelings are more important than facts now. So the third one was about moments of truth. This one's more about just adventure. So you talked a bit earlier about Argentina. Well, if you take that and expand that theme to all the different kinds of adventures you can have and that people have had and some of it involves historic stuff um, I mean hunting has adventure right at its very heart 
Mm. That's 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 right built into it. For going back all the way to you know guys using spears with with, with mammoth. Um, so adventure is the theme of the the fourth one. There's some reasonably famous people in it. Um, it should be visually quite spectacular. Um, you know, I can't give the exact recipe, but uh, that's that's where that that one's going. Um, I've got another six months or so to finish writing it. I've I've broken the back of the writing, um, but there's polish and then illustrations to go. And illustrations are formidable because you, as a magazine writer, will know a typical magazine article will need maybe five decent shots. I'm going to need 150 minimum, but the publishers are looking for 200, so they could throw 50 away. Yeah. So that's that's quite a lot of work. Um, and you were kind enough to talk about the the quality of the presentation. That's got a lot to do with Bateman and their 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 way of making books. Mm. So my content has to live up to how they make a book. Mm. Um, and in this instance, they're going they they're pushing the boat out a bit. This is going to be a hardcover, um, full color hardcover, three hundred plus pages. So. They, that's not common. You, you guys obviously have grown up with hunting books. That's that's when a publisher has, you've served your apprenticeship with your publisher, is where I'm going with this. Three books in, a, a decade in, or 12, 12 years in, the decision's made, we're going to go big on this one. Um, and you just have no right to ask for that when you do your first book. What? You're not so you, you, you explained that a little bit. Um, what does go big mean? You've explained what the um, book's kind of about. You're going hardcover, full color. This is this is more investment from the publisher. This is more skin in the game from them. This is more risk from them. Maybe is that what yes. you're talking about? Yeah. Yeah. All all of those things because a book mm. like that is going to have a price point of about sixty dollars uh, minimum, and so they're taking a risk that people will buy it. Um, but it's it's less of a risk now that they know what my sales have been like yeah. over time. Yeah. Sure. Like sure. That 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 last book sold out in six months um, so they're obviously looking at that and going well it's a reasonable commercial risk if we go to a more expensive it'll still sell out yeah um, didn't you so reprint that's, that's the opinion. yeah they've, they've done a reprint yeah, yeah. I think yeah. that's nearly gone well um, so uh, that's quite different to you don't know me you've never read my stuff yeah. I want a big flash book which they're, they're not going they're not going to do because if you if you realise what a publisher spends on not just um, printing, um, but distribution and layout and design and edit and 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 and, they're actually making a substantial capital investment in in their in their boy or, or girl writer to say we think this will go somewhere, and it's much more of a risk with non-fiction like like hunting books because they're illustrated, mm. whereas a novel is a much cheaper thing to produce. Yes. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and, your and your target uh, audience is going to be smaller as well, really. Yeah, limit, limited audience. Um, specialty book, limited audience, yeah. high capital outlay, so risk of, of yeah. how it goes. And that's why you, you need that um, apprenticeship to actually think about asking for something like that. Um, North America is different. You know, Craig Boddington's books, because the market is so much bigger. Um, you know, New Zealand, 5 million people. That's the size of a single US city. Um, but you don't you don't think that that's the addressable market, surely? New Zealand, um, obviously not. No, we're all we're all buyers. No, no. <laughs> but I can say after a long career selling magazine articles in the states and Europe that 
they really do prefer their own people. You've got to crack that market. You've got to actually be better than them to get yeah, looking. Yeah. And and they'll, and and they'll also drop you. For, you, you you might even if you're better, you might you you're often first drop. Yeah, look, and I, I I understand a lot of that. I I try and find uh, local authors when I'm looking for new content because I relate to it. Yeah. Um, you know, if there's a time that I'm looking at going to the US, you know, we're probably picking up a few of their books and having a read. It's probably more likely to be YouTube and magazines these days than reading a novel on it. But um, you know, I, I I would have thought that the reach was probably further than. Um, New Zealand, Australia. Not to say that uh, it's not. Look, but... I, I, I do sell books in Europe and, and the US, um, but not the same volumes as I do here. This mm. is the bread and butter. Oz in New Zealand is always yeah. going to be my bread and butter yeah. market. Mm. Um, and and mostly older people overseas. Um, yeah, yeah. Let's be honest, they're, they're mostly guys and they're mostly guys over 40 uh, yeah. or even 50. Um, and I thought for a long time, is that is that just my style that I seem to uh, appear to the appeal to the older brigade? But it actually, talking to publishers, it turns out this probably not it. It's and this is a bit of a worry. Most people under thirty just don't read. They just don't read books. Mm. So you, and I, as soon as I was told that, I started to notice. When you go into a person's house, there's no books. You know, this mm. person's twenty six or whatever, and twenty eight, and there's not a book in the house. And there are some frightening stats about um, uh, people who, the percentage of people who haven't read a book since high school, which is in the 28 to 30% kind of category. So in other words, a third of people stop reading books the minute they leave year, year 12 or whatever. Yeah. Um, they stop reading the minute they're made. This, they stop reading the minute they've, <laughs> it stopped being made to read, yeah. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's a, I'm not sure where that will go in the long term, um, but right here, right now, there's still a whole generation and a half mm. of people left who will very kindly pay to read my books. But I don't mm. think I'm selling many to the under 25s. Do you think that that um, do you think people are getting that they get to an age where they start to pick up books and start to collect quality books on the subjects that it is that you know they're interested in in their 40s? Do you think that those 25 to 35 year olds now that don't read are not going to pick it up I, I don't know That's I don't know if the experience ever been mm. done um, you know, I'm completely I, I different I'm completely different to the people that you described I didn't read a book when I was at school because all I had to do was stay at school for three years before I was allowed to join the military right, so I didn't read books I, I passed on practical and playing rugby because you know if you're in the right. top rugby team then the science teacher lets you have a yep. have a slide right. Um, yeah. I picked books up in my in my early twenties. Yep. When I um, when I had a mundane job in the city that required me to hand out coins for people to play spacey games in an arcade, so I sat there while people came and asked for coins, and I read books, and I just I read book after book after book, hour after hour after hour, and I picked it up that way. But I've noticed um, running hunting clubs that. As people get older, they then start to seek out the books. They get more refined. What you were talking about before, people get more refined in their hunting, and you know, as they get older, and then they start to pick up the books, and they want to live vicariously, I guess, through somebody else's effort more so than having to do I, it I themselves. Think people, 
I think people do get more reflective as they get older. No, no doubt about that. But I, I just don't think the experiment's been done. No. I think it's pretty easy. It's easier to go from I read a lot and I, I'm reasonably literate to drop down to social media and text speak. You know, hey, who this? Mm. All that kind of social media <laughs> stuff. It's easy to drop down to that, but it's really hard to go the other way. If you've yeah. grown up with yeah. uh, 128 characters, an actual book, it, it, it looks like a library. It's big, it's daunting, and mm. you don't, you, you're actually not qualified to read it, if I'm honest, which is how I felt as a young bloke reading some of the big, the greats. I thought, there's stuff going on between the lines here that I can't see. I can feel it, but I'm just not smart enough to figure out what it means. I think and, if you, um, and, if you keep appealing to the average Joe Hunter, who, um, I'm not, not, not to say that the average Joe Hunter isn't well qualified and, and a professional person, but there's a lot of different people that make up the hunting world. If you if you're creating a book that looks nice and it's nice to feel, and when you turn the pages and it's well illustrated, I think you'll capture a, a wider audience. You, you, you I'm not good, telling you anything you, you don't pictures. know. It's well done. You need good pictures. You do need good pictures. So, to my question, I was going to ask a minute ago: uh, out of the 200 pictures you have to find for this book, and the 150 get, get kept. Are you diving into the archives for these? Because you're drawing on history to write your book, aren't you? A lot of your own historical, you know, and stories of friends and experiences that you've had or been told. Um, or are you having to go out and source those? And, and you're carrying a camera everywhere? Or I do carry a camera everywhere. And, and now, thankfully, my son does as well. I gave him my old Nikon. Um, so it'll be a mixture. Some of it will be archival. Some of it will be friends. Some of it will be personal experience. So... A, a mix of all that but it, no matter which way you cut it it still adds up to quite a bit of imagery yeah. to pull oh. together mm. but you, you do need the imagery because I'm, I'm trying to write I think you said it earlier uh, reading you know reading it to you to your, your, your son um, I'm trying to write so that a, a, a guy could hand it to someone who doesn't hunt and say that's why mm. that mm. that for me is the filter I write through if you if you could hand, if a husband could hand this to his wife and say, you'll find that readable, you'll find that entertaining, and in there is the reason why we do it. That that's the purpose, uh, as opposed to, this is how me and Dave got the big one, kind of. Yeah, kind of stuff. everyone yeah. gets sick of that though. Mm. Yeah, you can read. Yeah, I mean for me, I, grew, I the biggest animal. Yeah. yeah, I mean I grew up reading. Um, there's a South African author called Peter um, Peter oh, uh, Peter Flack. And he he's hunted I know all of the yeah you know Peter so he, he me growing up I read all of his books I had all of his DVDs but for him you know he 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 did hunt the big one he always wanted to hunt the big one but he put a lot of um you know he really told the story around why he was chasing and what what his passions were and all that so I really related a lot to Peter to Peter Flack um I've got all of his books um and I've spoken to him a couple times. He's still alive as far as I know. I was in touch with him about a year ago in connection with this book um, because I was trying to trace a rifle that was used in Uganda uh, and I think Peter knew where it was and I actually did trace it down to um, uh, Tony Sanchez in Spain who's, who's still got it 50, 60, mm. 80 years old. Wow. So you know, <laughs> Peter, Peter's still around but he's getting on now. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. He's not really hunting anymore. So, yeah. Yeah. And I suppose then you've got someone like Boddington who seems like 
is like the world's greatest writing machine. That guy. I mean, the amount the amount of material he produces is phenomenal. You know, he just and he's got that huge following. But he, he certainly, you know, it's you know they talk about social media and they talk about content. Well, he's not in social media, but he certainly produces written content. That's for sure. Look, Craig. Craig is an absolute machine of a writer. He writes. Yeah. Everything. He'll he'll take the laptop, and when everyone is you know having a shower on a sundowner, he'll go and belt out five six hundred words to capture the day. He's very mm. it's his marine background. He's very disciplined. Mm. Um, but in terms of the apprenticeship, um, to put that in perspective, you remember I talked about being that kid who saves for hunting magazines in in year eight. I was reading Craig Boddington then. So that's how far back he goes, Innocence mm. Hunting, which was the expensive American, you have to save up your lunch money for magazine. He was in that in 1978 when I started reading. So that's how far his roots go to get to where he is today. Um, so that plus extreme work ethic combined with extremely deep tap roots, that's why he is where he is. Well, that's right. And the other thing, it would appear that he spends about three hundred days a year under canvas. So he's um he's Lucky a man. He's he's, <laughs> he's got a, a experience of of, of and the ability of, um, to experience new material all the time is is be a big big bonus in that. And then he can put that down on a paper. But uh, yeah, he seems to be one of those guys who I I, I don't know. I'm obviously looking at this from an outsider, but he's always somewhere doing something really exciting yeah he is i mean uh he's he contributed a chapter to that second book um that that you've, you've got there um so he, he's helped me along the way uh and he's a, he's a good guy to, to deal with um but then again he's, he grows a lot of relationships he has tons of commercial relationships with um, yeah. safari operators and products and so forth um so yeah different you know, I, I'm I'm an unknown, I'm I'm Mr. Nobody from nowhere who turns out a book every once in a while. Whereas Craig is a is a complete machine at this sort of stuff. But we we're coming at it from quite different angles. He's a very factual, technical writer. Yes. Um, yeah. So, got a couple you know, of his books right here. I've got I've got a couple sitting right over there in, in the the wee the wee bookshelf, just over. Oh, just under the hardware. There. Yeah. yeah. Um. So. There's there's probably half a dozen of Craig's in there signed, um, but and he was he was nice enough to I think give me one of those actually, so um, yeah look, it'll be a sad day when when there's no Craig in the in the industry, um, but he's still he's still out there powering through some pretty big hunts and some pretty yeah yeah it's a man it's, and I mean I've seen, seen him hunts with his family and stuff like that but he certainly. I've seen him, as you said. I follow him on 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 social media, and boy, he's he's not slowing down at any moment. No, he's not. I mean, I was in um, Mozambique in August, uh, in Cotado Eleven, and he was putting together a trip, his nineteenth trip to Cotado Eleven. So, um, you know, he's really chalking them up. I don't I don't actually think there's been another human being who's done more hunting, per se, than than Craig. Mm. Um, just because of the, the length of his career, but from anything else. Um, so, you know, he's probably, I think he's something like 700 international trips in. Wow. So, That's I mean, some freaking flyer miles. Oh. What, what, There's what, some freaking flyers there. 
what, what do you do with a number like that? You know, That's so, right. so he, he's, he's just great. That's awesome. So if he's got 700 chalked up or something like that, I'm not going to ask you how many you've, you've been on, but what, um, and, you, and you did say that you can't pick one hunt that you've been on over another specifically as, as being your best, but what's in the plan? What have you got coming up that is, uh, you know, in the near or, or, uh, or, or midterm future that you're planning towards? Well, it's, it's duck opening the weekend after next. So, <laughs> that's um, <a> <laughs> bloody kiwis and their duck. Oh, jealous of that. <laughs> yes. Let, 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 look, look, duck opening's a big deal. It yeah. is a big deal. You know, I the, know all about it. Yeah. It's a big deal. It's it's decoys out the night before. It's the monoi up. Um, it's bacon and egg pie. It's all yeah. all that stuff. Um, it's the it's the tradition. There are a lot of guys, as you you well know, who really only shoot opening day and that's it. Yeah. Because they're they're there for the social. Yeah. Um, and you know, I've, I've seen some my mys lately, actually not far from here, that look better than my first house. I mean, they oh, mate, are some absolutely <laughs> kitted out. There are Heated bunks seats, and coffee cup rests, yeah, yeah. bunks, mm. barbecues. Yeah. I mean, it, it's it, it's like Hogan's Heroes back there. You know, <laughs> <laughs> no, I just dated myself a bit, didn't I? Yeah, yeah no, just about it sounds a little coming up out of the night, a little grass rises up. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it is like that. There's this, there's this little death zone slit, and then behind it, it's like the Hilton. It's unbelievable. <laughs> anyway, um, so fancy question. Uh, duck season. Uh, then, then it'll go quiet a bit over the winter. Um, Midwinter here, the South Island. It's, it's there's probably not a lot going on out there. Um, I've got the freezer full anyway, so I don't really need need to go out and do anything. Um, I'm pulling together another team to go back into the Zambezi Delta next year. Go back to Mozambique. Mm. Um, We've got some new guys who've not chased the buffalo and sable and stuff there before. Um, I've got a few uh, un bits of unfinished business back there as well. Um, and so, and also, Kutato Levin's a massive conservation story. Um, so there's a little pangolin project that I'm working on with the guys who run that concession. Uh, pangolin, for those who don't know, world's most trafficked poached animal. Mm. There are hmm. small... Small creature, anteating type creature, covered in scales. They look like they're yeah. armor-plated. Very cute yeah. little, harmless little things. But because they're, they're, the scales are horny, they're used in Chinese medicine, Vietnamese uh, stuff. So there are whole container loads of, of scales showing up, which is millions of animals. They are the most trafficked animal on Earth. And there's a little conservation project going there that, that I'm part, I want to be part of. We, we've already been involved in the lion relocation there cheetah relocation is something they do um they're introducing the big predators back just really quickly that block was came out of a civil war and was poached out shot out um it's about a million acres thereabouts but it's surrounded by other blocks of a million acres so it just builds and builds and builds the whole complex is about the size of wales um they started off with about a thousand buffalo they're now up to twenty-five thousand. they started off wow. at 40 sable they're now at four thousand sable biggest free-range sable herd in Africa. No fences, you know, that kind of stuff. So this is a serious conservation project. There's about 25 guys on full-time anti-poaching, um, which is commercial bushmeat poaching, not some guy who just wants a few pounds of meat for his family. Yeah. And when you fly over it, the difference is, it is literally night and day. You go over nothing, and as soon as you hit the boundary of the concession, animals 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 everywhere 
it's it's like the Serengeti. It's just just there's fifteen thousand water buck on that one concession. So Unreal. this this is this is where you go somewhere and you think I don't mind dropping my dollars here because I can see what it's going see what into. It goes. Yeah, yeah. And, and what it's going into is nothing short of spectacular. Um, they bought twenty four lines in uh, in twenty eighteen. Um, because the lines have been wiped out with the, with the war, they're now over a hundred. Because you, you put them out on a plane full of antelope, and they're going to they're going to breed like flies. <laughs> they're going to be like lions. <laughs> yeah, they're going to breed like lions. So um, many of them came from South Africa, but some uh, from up in Zim, some from Gorongosa, places like I think from Gorongosa. Um, but in other words, this is not a put and take artificial, you know, operation. This this is an ecosystem. That they've rebuilt over about thirty years, solely off of hunting dollars, and I think that's where that's really where the future is going to lie. I'm hoping we're growing out of put and take kind of artificial situations. Though, although they do have their, their place, I mean, there are put and take operations in New Zealand, and I'm not having a fault with them. Yeah. Um, this is just a different level. Yeah. Look, go. Being very mindful of the time, because we're closing on two hours, and I know you've got somewhere to be. Want to give us any final words, wrap ups, or anything, guys? I'm just as I said, we're we're closing on two hours now, so I can't believe it. Well, no, I told just, you, yeah, this is amazing what you do. With, it's amazing what you do with, when you don't plan. Yeah. yeah how, I mean, how many uh, how many two hour uh, conversations have you had uh, sitting around a campfire after a, a an afternoon's uh-huh. hunting, mate? Th- thousands, thousands. Yeah, so normally there'd, there'd be something tinkly in my hand by now, but anyway, yeah, well, <laughs> I've got to think... drive, so I can't. I got to tinkle soon myself, but it's yeah, different. No. <laughs> that happens. That happens. No, um, for me, I just wanted to say thanks. It's great to have a chat um, with you, Pete, about all sorts of different things. Um, to put a, a, a bit of uh, a face to the to the man who's writing the books that I'm reading, and and loads mm-hmm. of people that'll listen to this will. We'll uh, get a lot out of that because you know you can read a novel, but to to actually sit there and watch someone have a conversation, um, I don't know, it adds something a bit different to the books that you're reading. I think so. I uh, really Definitely. appreciate that, and um, I'm not sure whether I'm going to be booking fellow a week earlier next year or not yet. I might. I'm um, telling everyone too, though. I'm going might, to tell everyone to do it. I might pick your brains <laughs> offline about that a little bit more. Uh, and uh, super keen to see book number four when it comes out. Ooh, so same. make sure you get in touch. We'll uh, we'll happily pre-read it for you if you're looking for helpers. Um, <laughs> I'll get my hands on that one early. There'll be no problem whatsoever. So um, we'll thank you. On. Really appreciate your time. Thanks, Lance. Yeah, same oh, for me. Had a great time. Yeah, same for me. Really enjoy the books. Really looking forward to book four. And um, yeah, keen to hear some more of your Africa stories. That's for sure. Man, as you know, I've been, I mean, I'm champing up a bit for this one to happen for some time. So it's great for it to come together. And uh, I'm, I'm going to, I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, book number four because uh, I'm, I'm thinking I'm, I might, it's, I'm coming close to starting my apprenticeship. So I'm certainly, again, looking at what you do and saying there, there's, there's some world class stuff to focus on. Uh, I, I kind of got the impression, guys, that you, you're looking for, I, I don't know, uh, charging elephants and double rifles and high drama. And no. uh, I'm, I'm actually not that guy. I'm, I'm, I'm. Ask my wife. I'm a schmuck who, who does some writing. That's about <laughs> that's about as far as it goes. And luckily, there's a, a couple of people out there who read it, and that's that's about all I've all I've got. How oh, well you got three of them here, so you you you're well in front. <laughs> 
Well, enjoy enjoy duck season. Uh, enjoy the savoys and hot tomato sauce or whatever it is that you do in the Mai Mai. Um, I'm sure it'll be a great time. Egg and bacon pie. Hello. Egg and bacon pie. <laughs> pie. Is that quiche? Right, that sounds like no, quiche no, to me. That's quiche, isn't it? It's got peas in it. Can't have. It's got peas in it. You can buy yourself a serious argument over that, but anyway. Yeah. <laughs> something about real men don't eat quiche or something like that, yeah. Uh, good stuff. Well, Thanks, it, it splits down into peas and no peas. So, I mean, you know, tradition. There it goes. Mm. All right, boys. Thank you. Awesome. Happy hunting. Thank you very much, mate. See, See you guys. Thank you. All right.